Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Welcome back to our study for Samuel. We left our account last week with the Spirit of the Lord departing from Saul and being replaced by an evil spirit. And that is where we'll pick up the account this morning. Look at verse 15 with me. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful, player on a harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Paul said to his servants, Provide me now with a man who can play well and bring him to me. I'll be dealing with the importance and place of music next week because there are a few other things I'd like to focus on this morning. Okay, here's the thing I don't get. If I were the one troubled by an evil spirit, I wouldn't want to only have the temporary relief of an evil spirit departing when the music was played. And while Saul's servant surely had the best of intentions, it just seems a little short-sighted. We know that at this time, the prophet Samuel was completely out of King Saul's life. My point is, I think the prophet Samuel would have offered a better solution to Saul's problem. I think instead of the temporary relief offered by Saul's servants, I think Saul would have had would have went to the heart of the issue and would tell Saul that he needed to repent of his sins. Saul doesn't need temporary relief. He needs a full-blown deliverance. But we live in a world where people spend their lives trying to temporarily quench a spiritual thirst that only God can quench. All the long and complex history of earth's religions, pagan worship, and human philosophy is bound up with the insatiable thirst for God. St. Augustine summed it up well when he said, O God, thou hast made us for thyself, our souls are restless, searching till they find their rest in thee. It amazes me the lengths people will go to try and satisfy their thirst. Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well? Now keep in mind, this woman has had five husbands, and now she's given up on marriage and is just living with a man. Jesus asks the woman for a drink, and the conversation goes like this. This is John 4.10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? He has answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The key to that story, I believe, is verse 13, where Jesus says that everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. For that woman, she was trying to quench her thirst with relationships, and yet here she is, so longing for something that can satisfy her thirsty soul. The thing is, there are things apart from God that can actually satisfy us. Actually, let me clarify that. There are things apart from God that can satisfy us for a temporary amount of time. The writer of Hebrews addresses this very thing when he writes in Hebrews 11:24. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. There it is. The Bible never says that there is no pleasure in sin. Of course sin is enjoyable, otherwise no one would do it. The key, however, is found at the end of that verse where we are told that Moses chose holy affliction over the passing pleasure of sin. Yes, there is pleasure in sin, but it is a quickly passing pleasure with diminishing returns. There is a shelf life associated with sinful pleasures, and in comparison with eternity, it is a very short time indeed. Things like pornography, alcohol, drugs, or shopping at the mall may satisfy your thirst for a while, but eventually that thirst will return, and then you must go back to that well for another drink. Not only that, but it begins to take more and more to quench that thirst. You really never know true satisfaction. It really doesn't even matter what the quenching agent we try to extinguish our thirst is. The results are always the same. We will eventually thirst again. So how does one find true and lasting satisfaction in life? The next verse tells us. Verse 18, please. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I've seen the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Who was skillful and plain, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Water resume. David had confidence, courage, and charisma. We can look at all of David's attributes and come to the conclusion well, if God would have given me all of those abilities, I could do something great also. Personally speaking, I can look at my own life, do a quick analysis, and say, I want to find out what your will is, Lord, but I have enough trouble trying to keep up with my car keys. My wife has to match my clothes, or I look like Boo Boo the Clown. And on top of that, this church has driven me crazy. To put it quite simply and honestly, there are men who are in their ministry who will always be more dynamic and engaging than I ever will, regardless of how much I pray, fast, and study. Why is that? Because God in his sovereignty has given them a greater gifting than he has given me for what he has called them to do. That's just how it is. So I'm only left with two choices now. I can pout and become discouraged because I'm not as gifted as they are. Or I can be faithful and thankful for the lesser gifting he has given me and honor and serve him to the best of my ability. But we have to understand and accept that God distributes his gifts disproportionately. Jesus tells a story about this in Matthew 25. He said, A master gave his servant some talents. Now the talents mentioned there are not abilities but a quantity of money, but the comparison is still the same. So in the parable, one guy received five talents, another two, and a third only one. Please understand, the Bible teaches us that even though we are equally important to God, when it comes to talents and abilities, we are not created equal. We are not born with the same IQs or the same dexterity or the same temperaments or the same physiques. David seemed to have been a multi-talented man. But what I want you to understand is that even though God distributes gifts disproportionately, he also distributes them commonly. What I mean is everyone has at least one gift. That means that God has entrusted you with at least one ability to use for him. There is at least one thing that God has gifted you to do in your service to the kingdom. You may be thinking, that doesn't seem fair. What rewards can I expect with my one talent compared to someone who has ten talents? This is where there's a huge disparity between the spiritual and secular world. In the secular world, that person with the most money or power is considered to be a resounding success regardless of how they attain that position. If they had to step on a few people and destroy a few lives, well, that's just business if you're going to be king of the hill. 
Very often in the secular world, you are rewarded for results regardless of what you had to do to get there. In stark contradiction to that, God's reward system is entirely different. On that great day, Jesus is not going to say to us, Well done, you famous servant, or well done, you talented servant, but well done, good and faithful servant. God does not call us to success in the same way we, we may define success, but to faithfulness. We must simply do our best to use what the Lord has given us. I said in the past that I believe that if a church has 10,000 people and the janitor is more faithful in the service to God than the pastor of that church, I'm absolutely convinced that the janitor will receive a greater reward. If we are faithful, we can rest assured that the kingdom will advance and souls will come to know Christ and that we will receive rewards for our service based on what he has given us and not on what we don't have. When God asked Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the children go, Moses used a number of phrases to complain about what he did not have. Who am I that I should go? Suppose they do not believe me. I've never been eloquent. After listening to Moses' complaints, God said to him, What is that in your hand? So you know what it was? It was a simple shepherd's staff. In essence, God would say, Moses, I'm not interested in what you do not have. I'm only interested in what you do have. Reach out your hand and certainly I will be with you. Likewise, the key to David's success in life is stated in verse 18 where it states, The Lord was with them. And really, that is the key to a successful life when matters of eternity are involved. In Mark 8.34, Jesus makes this abundantly clear when he says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake of the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, if it were possible for a person to actually own everything pertaining to this world and yet not know Christ, all of those things would be worth absolutely nothing when weighed on the scale of eternity. Simply put, unless the Lord is with a person, all their accomplishments are ultimately worth nothing. Do you know why? Because when we draw that final breath, the entirety of everything we own, and the positions that we hold are all left behind. We are only given one brief life, and how we spend it will determine if our life was truly a success. This is captured beautifully in a poem that reads, Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. I want you to know that Jesus could take the five loaves and the two fish and multiply them and feed thousands. God could take a weak, stuttering vessel like Moses and use him to lead thousands of Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. God can take 12 followers who have seemingly no education and have a hard time grasping the basic principles Jesus taught and yet would change the world through their lives. God can take a cross that was stained with the blood of his only son and lead to an empty tomb. God is powerful. He can take our little and turn it into a lot. It's been said that our potential is God's gift to us, but what we do with it is our gift to him. Before David would ever sit on the throne and rule the nation of Israel, he would first spend countless hours alone, unacknowledged and unappreciated. Day after day, David spent his time with his father's sheep on the lonely hills of Judea. There, David learned to be faithful to his responsibilities, even though no one else was watching. He learned obedience. He learned humility. He learned to be watchful. He learned lessons in the secret places that he could never learn in places of prominence. 
he was trained in the classroom of obscurity, and when he finally received the attention and applause of others, it did not go to his head, because he learned the lesson that he had no one to please but the Lord. It was on the lonely hills of Judea with a flock of sheep for his companions, the starry skies of his cathedral, and the vast expanse of nature as his classroom. David learned some of his most valuable and basic lessons of life. There can be little doubt that David blended in the day as David went about the monotony of keeping his father's sheep. Countless days, endless routines, the same things day in and day out. This is what marked the life of David. But it was in the monotonous routine of life that David learned to be a man of God. It was there, alone on those mountains, doing the same things day after day, that David learned the priceless lessons of faithfulness. David applied himself to the task of giving his best during the mundane times of life. Then when God promoted him, he did not have to learn to be faithful. He already knew how. He did not have to learn responsibility. He had already learned that lesson. God used the unending monotony of the routine to shape David for greater things. The same is true for us. Often Dave blends into day and see our lives as nothing but a boring, monotonous existence. All we fail to see is that God is working even during the routine times of our lives. As life unfolds, day upon changes day, as we learn to be faithful in the little things, we thus learn to be faithful to God. As we learn faithfulness in the seemingly insignificant areas of life, God will expand our level of responsibility. God always trains his people in private before he uses them in public. Therefore, we should never despise the days of obscurity. There is nothing wrong with having lofty dreams. We should all want to be used greatly by the Lord. We should want God to do through us what we have heard of him doing through others. But we must also realize it may not be God's will for us to do what others have done. God knows where we are, and in his time he will use us when, where, and to the extent he chooses. That brings up a question. Can you never do anything for God and still be a Christian? Is it possible to just hold on to the talent given you and still make it to heaven? Yeah, I believe it is. Salvation is by grace and not of any works that we do. So we can live our life here and never really impact God's kingdom. It's what the Bible refers to as a carnal Christian. And although that's perhaps the easiest way to live, one day you will be sorry if you have chosen the path of least resistance. The Bible clearly teaches that some will lose everything but their souls. 1 Corinthians 3.15 makes this clear when it says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yes, so as through fire. As I said in the past, when God is handing out crowns for service and it gets to you and all you get is one of those beanie hats with a propeller on top, believe me when I say that on that day you will wish that church of serving Christ was a more important part of your life. But unfortunately, on that day, it will be too late. In some way, our service to God on earth determines the extent that we enjoy eternity. Think of it this way. In heaven, we will all be full of joy. But you can have a shot glass and a gallon jug both full of liquid, and yet one has much greater capacity, doesn't it? That's how eternity is going to be. Everyone is going to be full of love, joy, and peace. But some people will just have a much greater capacity to enjoy it. Look at verse 19, please. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. I think it's very interesting that Saul knew David's name. The irony of this scene is palpable. Unwittingly Saul summoned the very one who possessed the spirit, who, because of his departure from Saul, 
had caused Saul's present distress. As the narrative is unfolding, this is a surprise. Saul, of all people, is the first character in the account to name David. But the phrase that most interests me is in verse 19, is where it's actually very easy to overlook. It simply says that David was with the sheep. Why would I think that would hold any significance whatsoever? We saw a couple weeks ago that David had been filled with the Spirit and anointed as the future king. So what has he been doing in the meantime? We learn that David is still found keeping the sheep. That means that even after this great anointing, he simply goes back to those same sheep he left only a few minutes before. Since it's just us here this morning, let me ask us a question to ponder in our individual hearts. If you had been anointed the next king, would you have been cool with going right back to the sheep herding? I think the temptation would have been to say to his family, who remember has treated him pretty disrespectfully. Why do you mean go back with those stinking sheep? Is that any way to treat the next king? Things are about to change around here, buckaroo. From now on, you're going to serve me. Some of you can watch the sheep. Some of you can feed me grapes. Some of you can massage my feet. I'll let you guys work out the logistics of that. But David doesn't have that attitude. Do you know why I think David has this attitude of service? I think it goes back to verse 13 where we read, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. You see, I believe when a person is truly filled with the Holy Spirit, they simply make themselves available to serve whatever capacity is needed at that time. And in reality, I think the true test of service is when we do things that often go unnoticed and without any applause or accolades. Our service to God is tested in the furnace of the ordinary. God is much more interested in developing our character than in changing our circumstances. When I read the Bible, I find very few instances where people prayed and asked God to change their position and God answered that prayer. But I can find numerous examples where God chose to work in the lives of people right where they were. When Paul wrote his first letter to the church at Corinth, he addressed those new believers that were trying to change their circumstances. 1 Corinthians 7.17 7, says, you should accept whatever situation the Lord has put you in and continue on it as you were when God first called you. Now there are some times when it is necessary to change our circumstances. Certainly if we're in a place where immorality is rampant or we're expected to participate in things that are contrary to our faith, we need to get out. But Paul was cautioning the people against spending too much time and effort in trying to change their circumstances rather than developing their relationship with God. In the providence of God, even his experiences as a shepherd were preparing David for his future service. His duties to watch over the flock, to feed and protect them, to heal the sick, to bind up the broken, and to bring back those who had wandered away, corresponded to the responsibilities of a faithful and godly ruler. And so when Saul needed a musician, his messengers found David attending the flock. None of us should be too proud to tend sheep, or to work on the plumbing or to fix communion, or to work in the nursery, or to fix coffee, or to greet visitors, or to mow my grass. In verse 21, where the New King James says that David came to Saul and stood before him, would actually be better translated as the NIV in the New American Standard renders it as David entered into Saul's service. David was going to be the next king, yet he didn't pull rank on Saul or say, I shouldn't be serving you, you should be serving me. The gifts that had been determined in the pasture, David was now willing to use in the palace. So David, who had been anointed king, now enters into the service of the reigning king. What a statement. 
David was not bitter. He didn't allow jealousy to rule his heart, and so he became a great blessing to the king. David reminds us of what I think are the two of the most essential qualities for a servant of God, and it is that of humility and holiness. What does it mean to be humble? I think there are a lot of false and faulty perceptions concerning it. I read about a man who always said he would one day write a book entitled Perfect Humility and How I Gloriously Achieved It. Or there was a great quote, quote by media mogul Ted Turner who said, If only I were humble, then I'd be perfect. Who do you think of in the Bible when it comes to humility? How about Moses? This is Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Do you know what I find funny about that? Moses is the man who wrote the book of Numbers, so he actually had to write that about himself. That had to be tough, right? When you have to write down in humility that you're the most humble man alive. God says that the pathway to greatness is humility. Humility is not pretending that you are nothing, ignoring your abilities or strengths. Humility is being willing to serve God and serve others no matter where you are or what you're doing. Humility is being patient, not trying to exalt yourself, but waiting for God to put you where he wants you to be. Humility is an essential aspect of love, both for God and for other people. God is looking for people who are great enough to be humble. God is also looking for people who are holy. Now, being holy is not just about being religious. There are a lot of religious people who are not holy. Being holy means being set apart to God in your heart, your mind, and your behavior. Being holy means living like you belong to Jesus and wanting to please Him because you love Him. God is looking for people who love Him enough to be holy. Maybe you don't see yourself ever being humble or holy. Don't feel bad. Nobody is very good at either one. Everybody I know struggles with pride at times, and holiness is not always the easiest road to walk down. But are we willing to at least admit we need to be humble and holy to become the person God is looking for? If we can get that far, we've gotten farther than a lot of people. So why not take the next step? Why not come to God and confess our pride and our lack of holiness and ask Jesus to help us become the kind of person God is looking for? He will help us if we ask him. In closing, now think about this. David's first job after being anointed king was to serve a bad king. Did God know this? Did God know that Saul was a bad king, was helping to form the future king? Of course God knew. It was Saul who influenced both positively and negatively the in-between years of David, the years between the sheep and the throne. With this in mind, Chuck Swindoll asked, Do you have a Saul in your life? Is there somebody who irritates and rubs and files and scrapes and bothers you? God knows all about it. That person is all part of his plan. Strange as that may seem.